I first just want to say thank you for this opportunity to um, be with you at Midway Presbyterian Church. Um, it's always a great honor to come and to be at this church. Um, Frank Harrington, who I met while I was in seminary in, um, at Union Theological Seminary, he came as a speaker. and Then we had an opportunity to go and meet him. Um, quickly became, as I heard him faithfully preach God's Word, preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ. His heart for evangelism quickly became a great hero of mine and uh, a model of ministry that um, I'm not sure I can ever live up to. Um, But also your church means a great deal to me as well um, because of the long relationship that you have had with the church where I serve, Darlington Presbyterian Church. Um, Wendell Robinson has been a longtime friend, and, um, and you probably know members of, of my church as well. And, um, and I want to say thank you to Darlington Presbyterian Church. They indeed um, have given this whole time to you. Um, they have freed up my schedule, so Sunday through um, Wednesday, the only thing I'm thinking about is um, what the Lord is calling me here, and I really appreciate that as well. And um, but but your church um, with us have come into the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, and I hope that you're experiencing the the blessings and and the joy of being part of this great denomination that really does seek to lift up Jesus Christ and to make Him known before all the world, not afraid to go to hard places. Um, but we all have this sense of, of being called to speak the gospel with boldness. And I pray that the Holy Spirit um, would give me the ability to do that today. As we come to God's Word, let us pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that You spoke through the prophets and the apostles. And we pray, gracious Lord, that You forgive us for reading Your Word so lightly. Too often we read this Word as if it's just a book of man. But what we know is is that this is the very Word of God. That You breathe these words out out of prophets and apostles to make your intent toward mankind known. To make known your glory and your praise and the mission to which you have called. And that is for all to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the Lord of glory who has risen from the dead and who reigns in heaven today. Oh, Father, help us to hear Your Word. We long for Your presence daily. We long for Your presence and Your power in the life of this church. We long for Your power and Your presence to be made known throughout the whole earth. And so, Lord, we pray, light that fire of Your Word in our heart by the power of Your Holy Spirit. Father, I am a frail and and weak person. May it be better to show Your Word by Your power 
that it may be confirmed in our heart as we are convicted and convinced of what you say. In the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I just want to ask you a question as we begin this this time together. And that is, what are you expecting to happen this week? You know, if you expect nothing, nothing's going to happen. Because if, if you expect nothing, then you're not praying for anything. But if you expect great things... You will pray for great things. And God who supplies our every need in Christ Jesus gives great things. We call these services a revival. Well, what do we hope will be revived? Some churches, what they hope for is that there's going to be an increase in church membership or a building program or more money to the church. But those are small dreams, aren't they? Some of you are are, are yearning for God to heal a marriage. Or knit together a broken family. Or to remove some deep, dark sin that you just know that you are being held in bondage by. Some of you are struggling financially. Some of you are hoping that the church will regain a new sense of God. Some just want the veil of darkness and despair to be removed. And maybe you're asking, where, where is the hope? Is God there? Does God know what is going on in my life? And will God reveal Himself to us? Now that, that really, those last questions are really getting at to what revival is all about. Revival is not something that we do. Revival is not something that happens because we put a sign on the door. Revival is not something that happens just because I say it. It is what God does in His sovereignty. It is what God will do in, in us and in our church and in our community. Martin Lloyd-Jones defined revival this way. He said, the essence of revival is that the Holy Spirit come down upon a number of people together, upon a whole church, upon a number of churches, upon districts, or perhaps a whole country. And that is what is meant by revival. It is, if you like, a visitation of the Holy Spirit. Or another term that has often been used in this way. An outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Are we praying for God to do great things? You know, I'm sure that that's at the very heart of what you're praying. You know, this this week, this past week, time that I had, had guarded very much, Um, has been taken up with all kinds of unexpected pastoral responsibilities that every pastor has. And as I came to the church today, it is with a great sense of intrepidation that I haven't 
prayed enough or, or I haven't been in the Word enough or that I'm not prepared enough. But, but what a great grace there is. When I think it was Friday night, Mike sends me a text and here I am in the midst of my struggle and Mike says, we, we are praying for you tonight. And then I hear y'all had four prayer meetings. That tells me that you as a church know what today is about. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Haggai. Um, it is in the Old Testament. And something to kind of help you, it is Haggai was one of the last three prophets to speak to Israel. And so the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi. The next to the last book of the Old Testament is Zechariah, who spoke at the same time as Haggai. And Haggai comes right before Zechariah. So if you would turn to Haggai chapter 1, and over this week we will go through the two chapters of the book of Malachi. Listen to the reading of God's Word. Beginning at verse 1, it says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. To Zerubbabel the son of Shiltiel, who is the governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now let me just briefly explain those names to you. Haggai most likely was the prophet who, during the reign of Jehoshaphat, was there in Jerusalem before the Babylonian exile. And so he is part of that generation that remembers the temple that Solomon built in all of its glory. The next two names that are mentioned is a grandson of King Jehoshaphat, which means that he is in line with the kingship of of, of David. And we know of his father Shealtiel that he was taking into exile with the Babylonian exiles. And then when the king of Persia conquered Babylon, he sent a new generation back to Jerusalem. And this is a generation of people who did not see Jerusalem in all of its glory. They didn't see the kingdom in the way that Shealtiel or Haggai did because they most likely were born in Babylon and they had only heard their fathers and their mothers tell them of the holy city of Jerusalem. And so this is a, is a new generation in a land that they had only heard their parents speak of. And they have been sent with a mission to rebuild the holy city, to rebuild the holy temple. This is the word of the Lord that came by the hand of Haggai the prophet in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? 
Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but but you never have your full. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. This is the Word of the Lord. Do you understand those words that I just said? I'm not talking about the Scripture verse, but the way that I close the Scripture. This is the Word of the Lord. This is the Word of the Lord that's to you. It's the Word of the Lord that is to me. It is the Word of the Lord to Israel. I think sometimes when we take this book and we begin to read this book, we forget that truth. And I realized that as I was going through and going over my notes um, this morning, and, and I kept reading, Haggai said, Haggai told. And as I was going back through it and, and, and reading back and praying over the text, I saw, no, no, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord. What is necessary for revival to come into our lives and into our community is for us to hear, thus says the Lord. It is the Lord who speaks. It is the Lord who is calling to Israel and seeking to awaken them from their comfortable slumber in their paneled houses. He is saying, wake up! The Lord God Almighty who made the heavens and the earth. It is the Lord God Almighty who is deeply concerned about revival and renewal in the holy city Jerusalem among this new generation that He has brought forth from Babylon. He is calling the people to a building program, but at the same time, He is calling to the people to something that is much greater. The Word of the Lord that Haggai brings is a call to God's people to pause. God is saying, stop what you are doing and consider your life. 
Stop whatever it is out in the world that you think that is more important. Whatever that grocery list is, you'll get everything on that list. I'm not going to guarantee that to you, but you'll get that list done. Whatever it is at work tomorrow or at school, whatever it is, stop it. Don't think about it. God has something that He wants to to say to us. And it's this, consider your life. Take these moments this week and consider the way, your way of life. What would your life look like if you really got everything that you wanted? What would your life look like? Do you have a picture of that in your mind? I know you've got to have hopes and and dreams. What if every one of those hopes and dreams were sufficient for fulfilled. Would God be in those dreams? Is God at the center of your desires? Or is there something else where you find comfort at your heart's desire? The book of Haggai is important because He calls us today, the church, to stop and to consider our way of life. You know, in, in one sense, the way that Haggai is, the Lord is calling through Haggai for us to, to consider our life is the opposite of the way we usually think, isn't it? Most often what we think is, is if we go through and we take care of our personal lives, we get our house in order if I go through and just make more money and I can save that money up, then I can go to the mission field. Or then I can give to the mission of this church. Or then, maybe, I can have more time to invest and to give to the life of this church. That's exactly what Israel was doing, this new generation. They came back. And they didn't realize what the big deal about God's house is. It's important to us to understand what the big deal is about the temple in Jerusalem. If you were to look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, beginning at verse 10, you have here that through Moses, the Lord speaks to Israel through Moses and He says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everybody doing what's right in his own eyes. For you have not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you into the promised land. But when you go over the Jordan and you live in that land that the Lord your God is giving you, to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord God will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, all your finest offerings that you vow to the Lord, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. Do you see... God says that when you go into the promised land, 
and you have taken that promised land, I will show you a place in which you will build a house for Me. And there in that house, you will make those sacrifices by which your sins are transferred transferred to the Lamb. And by the Lamb, He will take on your sins so that you will have forgiveness. And in turn, there in the temple of the Lord, that is the place you will rejoice in Him. Because you will have security because of the sacrifice of the Lamb that you are in relationship with God. And to come into the presence of God will be a matter of joy. Do you know that the Lord, He wants you to come into this house as a matter of joy. It's the whole reason for the sacrifice of Christ. It is His whole plan that our sacrifices are transferred to Christ. And He dies for our sins so that in turn we can have His righteousness. And therefore, we can enter in as the living stones of the church to rejoice in the Lord. God's house is important. If God's Word emphasizes how important God's house is, what happened to the people? Why did they lose sight? It's interesting, if you go through and you read Ezra, it gives us the whole story. Ezra tells us about how King Cyrus orders that they were to go back and to build the temple in Jerusalem. And that they began doing that work. And as they began doing that work, Samaritans, those who, who, who were a mix of Gentiles and Jews, began saying, we want to join you in this work. And, 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 and the Lord's people said, no, this is the work that the Lord has given us to do. Well then, because they weren't included in the work, they began to mock them, to ridicule them, to threaten them. They sent letters to a new king who had forgotten King Cyrus's edict. And he demanded that their work would, would stop. And now we come to the book of Haggai where for 16 years the building of the temple has been neglected. The foundation has been laid, but there have been no walls that have been added to it. And you see, they feared God more than man. They feared God, that they, they feared man more than they feared God, so they stopped building the temple, and they focused on building their houses, saying, it's not time. The time has not yet come. Which really is simply a code word for, we don't want to anger our enemies. But you know, Haggai, he, he gives us other clues. He says they lived in paneled houses. The Lord points out to them, He says, you know, you're living in comfort. That's what that word panel, if you could afford paneled housing, that means financially you were doing great. You were living in the midst of great comfort. I said at, at, at my church, I, I said, you know, I'm really surprised. You know, we have Darlington Veneer and Reggie Hubbard, who's the president of Darlington Veneer, sitting right there. And I said, I'm surprised they had paneled housing, a booming business in Israel. And he told me that the Egyptians have been doing paneled housing for 
thousands of years. But what it means is, is they chose comfort over God. Now let's be clear, it's not comfortable living that is a sin. That's not the issue. The issue is a lot more. The real issue is consider your way of life. Is your comfort a greater priority to you than being faithful to God? You see, the Lord calls the people to consider their way of life. He points out the wrongness of comfortable living at God's expense. Their comfortableness has not made them more passionate about God, but their comfort has made them complacent. And that's what happens in the church. And the big lesson of Haggai is this. You gain nothing when you attempt to rob God for your own comfort. Instead, you only rob yourself of the blessing that God intends to give. You see that here. I mean, listen to what the the Lord said. He says, consider your ways. You've sown so much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with, with holes. You're pursuing the comforts of life, but they're not satisfying you. David Foster Wallace once described the importance of worshiping the true God instead of the idols of our society in a college commencement address. He says everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything else that you put first as your comfort will eat you alive. Listen to how he describes it. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll have enough. You'll never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths. Your loved ones then will finally plant you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your fears. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they are evil or sinful, because those things are actually can be good things. But it's that it becomes unconscious that we worship those things. They become default settings in our life. You know, our society pushes God into a forgotten corner. But can't we see that we can never get rid of God as hard as we try? We simply worship false gods. These things in themselves, they're not wrong. 
But we do this when we put them before God, and the result is, as David Wallace says, as opposed to blessing our life, these things eat us alive. Do you understand what God wants to happen in this temple? What God wants to happen in your life of you living stones? God has a great plan. And we see that in verse 7 when He says, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, we ask the question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify and to enjoy God. It's the reason why the church exists. It's the reason why you exist. You exist to glorify and to enjoy God. In the New Covenant, we together are the temple of God. We are living stones that make a temple. And His desire is that He would take pleasure in us. And that we would glorify Him in this world where people don't know what true glory is. What is the big deal of Haggai that makes our life different if we'll listen? Well, I want to say to you, pause this afternoon. And Mike, this is kind of my invitation to. I'm not going to ask you to come forward today. But instead, what I want you to go is go back to your homes. Go back with your families. And ask yourself, Do I have my priorities in the wrong order? Have I pushed God into the corner so that other things are taking first place? If you answer that, you've forgotten your purpose. I had, um, when I was preparing this sermon, um, a man that came into my office, a black gentleman, very poor Depends on working on a, on a farm. And he, just, he, he, he knew a friend of mine and he came and he, he spoke to me and he says, you know, I've got absolutely nothing in life. And I have people all the time who will ask me, Clarence, what's the reason for your joy? Do you know what he said? This man has absolutely nothing other than what he earns by his hand from day to day. He says, the reason I have joy is Jesus, others, yourself. That's the priority of my life. Jesus, others, yourself. And that's the only source of joy that we have those in the right priority. I want you to think for for a moment, what happens in a marriage when you get those priorities mixed up? When it's yourself, others, and then Jesus. That's why you're clashing heads all the time. That's the reason for the fighting and for the bitterness. 
You know, I believe deeply the longer I'm in ministry that Christians ought to marry Christians. Because you don't have the foundation of Jesus Christ upon which to build your marriage. It's not about being exclusive or rejecting other people. But it comes from the basic truth that that I have, have seen as a pastor who deals with hurting, broken couples. That when you have a husband over here who says that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and he is focused here and he is growing this way, and you have a, a wife or a husband, and I mean, if you have a wife or a husband going up or a wife and a husband, you're going that way. And it's no reason that you grow farther apart, isn't it? The way towards a happy marriage is for husband and wife to say, Jesus first. And our goal is to grow towards Jesus. And as we're growing closer towards Jesus, look what happens. We grow closer to each other. And you're going to find that's true in the church, in your business, in your family life. Joy begins... With Jesus. And my invitation to you today is to consider your way of life. Do you have those three things in the right order? To God alone be the glory forever and ever. Amen.